Well, if you would, turn to Psalm 110. <clears throat> Psalm 110, as I mentioned in the email that hopefully you received, uh, Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament. Uh, it's hard to believe. Uh, this sucker is theologically extremely rich and invaluable to the theology of the Old and New Testament canon. I've titled the psalm, A God Who Keeps His Promises. Uh, singing about, there's a lot of so-called guarantees, you know, lifetime warranty. <laughs> you read the fine print, right? In fact, I thought you'd like some of these photos. I don't know if you can see this or not. We guarantee fast service no matter how long it takes, right? I love it. Here's another one for you. And double your money back if you find a pizza that we like better. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, if you find them. And then here's another. Mall maintenance shop. We can repair anything. Here's a guarantee for you, like the Kirby's right over here. Please knock hard on the door. The bell doesn't work. <laughs> All right. Here's another guarantee that I thought was good uh, to start us off this morning. Let's see if I can get it. It says, satisfaction guarantee or your dent back. <laughs> that one I can relate to. Uh, and then one more, two-hour guarantee. If you do not receive your food order in two hours or less, it's free. <laughs> yeah, I think I'd be going elsewhere. <laughs> so anyway, well, there are a lot of so-called guarantees in our life, isn't there? And uh, there's usually the fine print. And for some of us, we thought that when I said I do, till death do us part, was a guarantee, and that didn't prove to be the case. For others, um, it, it, it may be a, another situation where you entered a partnership and business and you thought that was a lifetime commitment or a guarantee and you got stabbed in the back. The list goes on. There is a guarantee, and it's found with the Lord, and it's found in Psalm 110. Because when I think of this Psalm, I look at the New Testament, I'm like, yes. Here is a God who keeps his word. Psalm 110, if you would, please turn there and we'll start reading. It says, Here is the Lord's proclamation to my Lord. Sit down at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord extends your dominion from Zion, which is most likely Jerusalem, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people willingly follow you when you go into battle. On the holy hills, and this next phrase is uh, very problematic in, in knowing how to interpret the Hebrew. It says, at sunrise, the dew of your youth belongs to you. You might have a different rendering. We'll get to that in a minute. The Lord makes <clears throat> this promise an oath, and he will not Revoke it. So there's your guarantee. And here it is. You are an eternal priest after the pattern of Melchizedek. O sovereign Lord, at your right hand, he strikes down kings in the day. He unleashes his anger. He executes judgment against the nations. He fills the valley with corpses. <clears throat> Uh, this is what I wish I had for the guy who hit me. No, I'm joking. Um, <clears throat> that's awful. Forgive me. <laughs> he shatters their heads over the vast battlefield. From the stream along the road, he drinks. Then he lifts up his head. 
there in the beginning of your notes just an overview of this uh, psalm. Uh, Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm. There are several in the Psalter, Psalm 2, for instance, Psalm 69. And what we mean by messianic is that the New Testament writers will latch on to that psalm and see Jesus Christ being portrayed in the future. And certainly Psalm 110 is no exception, as you might expect. In your notes... I highlight some of the characteristics of a messianic psalm, in particular Psalm 110. First, we see a reference to Christ uh, in the New Testament based on that psalm. Secondly, the word anoint occurs. Um, The term Messiah is never found in the Old Testament. Um, It's found in intertestament Jewish literature. Uh, Anointed one, however, is found elsewhere in There's the connection there that we see. Reference to the Messiah clearly depicts someone who's more than merely human. Uh, This isn't just your average Joe. Psalm 72 is a great example uh, that whoever we're referring to, this Lord, this future king, this is not just someone who's human. (laughs) Uh, It exceeds that. And then uh, number four in this list is... he. This one who is predicted serves as the ideal Davidic uh, king. This is the one we've looked for, the ultimate one. Psalm 110, as we break this down, I think verse 1 fits the very beginning with the idea of the Lord will exalt the future king. Notice in verse 1, the writer says, Here is the Lord's proclamation to my Lord. Some scholars see this as a prophet who's standing in the Davidic court and saying to King David, here is the Lord. Others do not see this as a reference to David, but David is speaking and he's referring to a future Davidic king, uh, the ideal one, knowing that there's a promise. Remember 2 Samuel 7, God made a covenant with David. uh, This idea that there's going to be one who reigns eternal and and that's the interpretation certainly the New Testament takes on verse 1, doesn't it? I think of Matthew 22. Uh, Jesus refers to this psalm, and he's saying David is referring to the Messiah, uh, some divine uh, right, divine individual who will reign. In fact, the Pharisees picked that up because they walked away. There's no response, if you recall, in Matthew 22. The opportunity of this Lord is to sit down at my right hand. That's extremely significant. I, I, I just have two images here. The first of these is a, a coin in the Roman Empire where the emperor is seen sitting at the right hand as a god in the hand. Right? So it's a sign of authority, of position. Here, the pharaoh is sitting and the servant to the right is one of, of a, uh, receiving authority. It's an extension of the one sitting. So to sit down at my right hand is a position of great authority. Uh, It's it's a bit of a conduit of the king himself. And I mentioned this there in your notes. 1 Kings 2 mentions this as well. Uh, It's one of prestige. There in your notes I wrote, We should also note that Yahweh's invitation for the king to take up a seat of honor beside him underlines the fact that God is the real king. David does not rule in his own right, but as a co-regent and a representative. And that is key. Um, And you see that as you go through the psalm, don't you? Until I make your enemies your footstool. 
in the midst of your enemies. In, in other words, your enemies are my enemies. <laughs> um, and the, the issue of footstools and the issue of enemies are, are usually in reference to God. In fact, every time enemies is used in the Psalms, it's God's enemies. Six times it occurs. And same with footstool, and that's there in your notes. This idea that it's, you're my co-regent, the one who sits at my right hand. And ultimately, if they deal with you, they're dealing with me, is the idea. And again, we're going to get to this in a minute with Christ, but that's exactly what happens, doesn't it? And that's why the Lord will say, not my will, but yours, Father. I represent your will here on earth. I am at your right hand in, the sp in, in representing you. And so ultimately, the judge is God himself. And there in your notes, this making mention of your enemies. Um, again, 2 Samuel 7, David, the Davidic covenant, right? That God makes with David. He says, your kingdom's going to be forever. And he says, in that covenant with David in 2 Samuel, your enemies, you will vanquish. You'll take care of. Because I'm going before you. You represent me and leadership. And then ultimately then, as we look at this, again, David's success as a ruler is divinely ordained. It's linked with the divine presence. David and this one to come does not operate on their own accord. They operate with God going before them. And that's, that's what I want you to see there as we look at this. He moves then, after making this overarching declaration, he then spells this out and how exactly this occurs in verses 2 and 3, as you see there in your notes. <clears throat> he states, The Lord extends your dominion, your scepter, and again he refers a second time in this psalm to your enemies. Your enemies you're going to deal with. Um, ultimately, who's in charge? God, right? He's the one calling the shots. You're going to do this because I'm the one telling you this is what's going to happen. In your notes under verse 3, I said, Contrary to these enemies, holiness is required for those who will accompany the Lord. Notice what it says in verse 3. Your people willingly follow you, unlike the enemy, when you go into battle. The holy hills, which is probably a reference to Jerusalem and the holy mountains, will arise and the dew of your youth, which we'll get to in a minute. One commentator with verse 3 states the actual word in the text is free will offerings, those who willingly follow. This is the, it's figurative, meaning that those who belong to the king willingly offer themselves in service. Again, think about Christ. We're going to get to that. He is the king of kings. And those who want to follow must do so. We have the choice to follow or not to follow. <clears throat> the dew of the morning, there are several ideas here. Some see this as a sudden appearance of the king. Others see it as their youthful vigor or um, even the time of appearance. It's early in the morning, but unexpected. It's probably, I'm going to go with the idea that's the strong youthful warriors. You got an army and it's young uh, and they, they can move quick and strike hard. And the language of war and battle, again, we've already seen, but we'll look at it in verses 6 and 7. So, what is the, the Lord saying? <clears throat> I'm going before you. Your enemies are going to be dealt with. 
the righteous will follow you, and uh, your army is going to be like none other because it's, it's got young bucks in, <laughs> leading the way. Questions on verses 2 and 3? That's, that's key here. We'll get to application in a minute, but it's important we understand the psalm and what the, David is saying. The Lord goes before. <clears throat> Unless you question whether God can really fulfill this in verses, well, in verse 4, he's going to put his reputation on the line. And he says, the Lord makes this promise, an oath, and nothing is going to change it. This Psalm, 1100 B.C., Christ comes on the scene and we see the beginning fulfillment of the very thing God promised to David. You will have a descendant. He will reign. And there's a day coming, I think an ultimate day, when that king will return, uh, Revelation 19 and 20, and he will slay the nations, those who do not willingly follow. Yes? Uh, there are several occasions where the Lord will take an oath. Uh, I don't know the number. Um, <clears throat> any of the covenants is the Lord taking an oath. Uh, he's already entered a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, Bruce, do you know? I don't know the number of occurrences. But the, often God is depicted uh, both in the Old and the New Testament, but in the Old Testament as a God who, who can be trusted, a God who's willing to put his reputation on the line, uh, and he will seal that, repu that statement with his own reputation. In other words, I'm coming into this. It's interesting, the term used for the Lord in Psalm 110 is Yahweh in the sense of a God of covenant. A God has entered this and nothing's going to break it. Um, <clears throat> your unfaithfulness, David, is not going to change it. I made the oath, right? Uh, he didn't make an oath with Saul. <laughs> God made an oath with David, though, right? I said, I guarantee this one. Um, did David do anything to earn that? Not really. Yeah, not really. <laughs> did we, when we became believers and followers of Christ and this, the oath, the promise that God has made to us, did we do anything to earn it? No. God chose David. So yeah. what's, the, what's the timing of the writing of the song and the sequence of David? Uh, Jamie, that's a great question, and I, I've not found a scholar that has landed on it. Some have seen this as his coronations, the coronation of David, it was delivered. Um, others see it as uh, later on, as he is uh, being attacked by various enemies, uh, reminder to David, no, God's made an oath and he'll secure it. We just don't know. That's a great question. I wish we did. Uh, a lot of the Psalms are just, unfortunately... There are some who argue it's later. It's not even related to David. It was an intertestament, and I, I don't see that. I do think it was written during the time of David. Yes? Do we think of this as defensive battles or offensive battles? I'm, I see it as, as offensive here. Uh, I don't see it as defense. This is no pansy. One, there's the uh, young youth. So uh, <laughs> youth usually are not uh, seen as... Uh, Reactionary, or they're uh, seen as uh, they don't usually take the defense. Secondly, we see in verse six, he executes judgment. Boom, 
against the nations, and he fills the valley. So it's he's doing the act, action here, fills the valleys with corpses. And I, and I think there's quite a bit of uh, connection here with, I believe, Revelation 19, the battle of Armageddon when God goes forth. Now you can debate your, your eschatology, may not agree with mine, but I see it as the, as the Lord uh, wiping out the enemies. And notice it says the heads over the vast battlefield. And by the way, you see a, um, all the nations to, to ultimately the leaders he's taking out uh, as he unleashes. Um, but it, it appears to be that it's the Lord who strikes. The Lord is taking the proactive step in that. But let's go back to verse 4, this irrevocable oath that the Lord makes. Because it's very important that you see a couple things in verse 4. Uh, that the Lord does. In verse 4, we see the Lord makes the promise, and I think that's the Davidic covenant. So it's a reminder in 2 Samuel 7, David, I made an oath with you. <clears throat> then he says, you're an eternal priest after the pattern of Melchizedek. Now, I didn't sneeze, and you go, who in the world is Melchizedek, right? What does he mean? And how can he be a priest? Because you remember Jewish history, uh, the priest is from what tribe? Yeah, the Aaron, Levi, right? And where is the royal line from? Which tribe? Judah, right? They are not to mix. In fact, in the intertestament period, the Hashmoneans, the Maccabeans, you may know that from your history, uh, it's the first time a Jewish king who is from, uh, well, they're priests, the Maccabeans are priestly line, they also are declared king, and they're made, and that's what ticks off some of the Jews, and that's where you get the Essenes, the Jews that went out to the Dead Sea. Uh, they separated because they saw the Hasmoneans as polluted. Uh, they're not to be both king and priest, and yet the Lord says to David, you're going to be not only the king, but you also are a priest, but not after Levi, not after Aaron. It's after Melchizedek. And you go, who is this guy? Turn to Genesis 14. This is key. <clears throat> this is where it gets fun. This just makes my socks roll up and down. All right. So Genesis 14. <clears throat> um, this is where you see the Bible. I just, yeah. <laughs> We'll start at verse 17. Genesis 14, verse 17. And after Abram, this is Abraham later, returned from defeating Kedalomar. Now, and the kings of... The, this is the First World War. Don't miss this. These are major nations in the north. Abraham, come on. <laughs> He's a good middleman. He is loaded. He has an army. All right? He goes to battle and he defeats them. That is amazing. Tells you a little bit about, I know God's in charge, God's overseeing Abram, but Abram has got the resources. And he goes to battle, and he takes on the five major nations in the north, and he defeats them. That's why I love taking people up to tell Dan, because the mud brick gate, Abraham would have probably seen, because he goes all the way up to Dan, which is just awesome. Anyway, uh, and it says, uh, he went down to meet, uh, it says, the kings were with him. The kings of Sodom went out to meet Abram in the valley of Sheva, known as the king's valley. Melchizedek, king of Salem. Um, he comes out of nowhere like cockroach with the light on. You're going, what in the world? And it says he brought out bread and wine. Now, he was the priest of the Most High God. He's both king and he is priest. And he's of Salem, which is later Jerusalem. All right. He blessed Abram. 
and Abram gave him a tenth. Who's greater? Charlemagne, remember, the, the, the Pope was going to crown him. He says, no, I'll crown myself. Well, what's he saying to the Pope? I'm in charge, not you. You're not crowning me. If, if Abraham gives uh, the tithes through Melchizedek and Melchizedek blesses Abram, Melchizedek is greater. Who's Levi a descendant of? Abraham. This priest is greater than the Jewish priests. Melchizedek, 11Q Melk. It is a Dead Sea Scroll document that was found. Uh, this is before the time of Christ. And 11Q Melk says when the Messiah comes, he will be after the order of the priestly line of Melchizedek. And Zechariah says when the Messiah comes, he'll be both king and he will be priest, high priest. And what do we see in Hebrews? We'll get there in a minute, right? I mean, it's just exciting. We'll tie this together in a minute. But out of nowhere, Psalm 110 says, Oh, by the way, you're the Davidic king. You'll also be a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, he comes out of the woodwork. You don't, um, you don't know where he came from or who he's, where he's going. His parents aren't mentioned. I think he is a historical figure. I do believe that. But I think the text intentionally does not tell you his parents. He seems to be eternal. Out of nowhere. And that's the point the writer of Hebrews is going to make with our Jesus. Interesting, another Dead Sea Scroll, 1 um, QS 9-11, states, uh, these are Jewish writings in the Intertestament period. They saw three messiahs, a kingly, royal one, a priestly one, and a prophetic one. Jesus is all three. He wears all three hats, right? He's a king, he's a, the high priest, and he's our prophet. It's, it, that was intentional. And we'll get to the significance of this minute. But he says, you're the eternal priest after the pattern of. You're one like this Melchizedek that came out of the woodwork and, and gives uh, a blessing onto Abraham and all of his descendants, which is so significant. Don't miss that. So, whoo! I mean, not only does he get to sit at the right hand of the Father, God Almighty, not only are his enemies his enemies, also this one is elevated to the high priestlyhood. I mean, you, you got it made, right? Questions on this? We'll get to Christ here in a few minutes. Uh, I want to develop this a little bit further. Oh, should we do it now? Let's do it now. Turn to Hebrews 7. It's so good, we just have to do it now. Hebrews 7. The writer of Hebrews, who is writing to Jews to show that Christianity is, is much better than the Judaic teaching at the time, highlights this. He recounts in, in chapter 7 of Hebrews, Melchizedek, king of Sodom. Uh, Salem, excuse me, Sodom. Oh, dearest. It's about as bad as September the 10th. I greatly apologize. Oh. And in verse 11, so if perfection had in fact been possible through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise and be in the order of Melchizedek and not in Aaron's order? For when the priestly priesthood changes, a change in the law must come as well. And, and in other words, the writer Hebrews is saying, listen, the order of, of priesthood through Aaron, it's imperfect. They have to offer up sacrifice for themselves first. 
And he said in verse 15, this is even clear, if another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not by legal requirements about physical descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For here is the testimony. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Where do you think he got that? Psalm we're looking at. On the same hand, a former command is set aside because it's weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, a better hope is introduced when we draw nigh to God. For verse 23, and others who become priests were numerous because death prevented them from continuing in office. He holds a priesthood permanently since he lives forever. That's our Christ. And so he can intercede on our behalf. And the writer of Hebrews is great because he says not only is he the, the great priest, he's also the great sacrifice. Right? If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, wow, th there's no other means. Jesus said it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's exclusive. Right? There's no other way. The beauty is that this Christ not only serves as our high priest, he serves as our king. Right? And the life that we live in, uh, the, the lack of guarantees of anything in this world, the insecurities that we live in today, it's nice to know there is one thing that will not falter. Uh, there's nothing that's going to get to this. We looked at this last week, or two weeks ago, with a psalm, a reminder that God is in charge. Uh, terrorists aren't going to undermine it, you know. The next president isn't going to undermine it. The Lord sits on the throne and on the right side is not the Democrat Party or the Republican Party. It's, it's Christ himself, right? And his enemy is anyone who doesn't walk in righteousness, whether the Republican or Democrat. <gasps> I said that, yes. God is in charge. He reigns, right? Yeah, Kyle. You know, it's, I have to this is a little bit of, of a, kind of an awful passage, passage basically, you know, spent a whole lot of time on, you know, but certainly not talk about a salvation passages, this isn't used very much, even though he's always able to save those who come to God through him. I mean, that's as clear as it gets in terms of the salvation message, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. I don't know. I'm not real familiar with this passage, you know? You Sometimes it makes it, I, I don't know if the reason we don't address it, it's, it is a little convoluted to unpack this Melchizedek and exactly how this is working and why. Are there any other questions on this? Because this is huge in knowing the connections. Well, yes. Scholar, I think some scholars say that Melchizedek could have been of Jesus in his own form, but others say that he wasn't. So yeah, that's what your opinion is. That's right, Dan. There are some that say it's a prefigured Christ. Uh, before he came, he appeared in the form of Melchizedek. I don't think so. Um, I think the angel of the Lord is probably a pre-incarnate Christ, so to speak. Um, I, I think Melchizedek is a historical figure. I think he was the king of Salem. Uh, and um, the king of righteousness, Melchizedek is his name. Uh, yes? I recently went through Hebrews and struggled with his character and you know, when it says, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. I mean, I think that's the one that kind of makes you scratch your head. But I've concluded also that he's not Jesus, he's a man. And all this says is the fact that there's not a record of his lineage. Yeah, that, that's exactly how I take it. 
I think Genesis intentionally did not give us his genealogy. You know, this isn't the son of intentionally to show that in a pattern-like way, he's eternal. But I do see him as historical. Thank you. I, I, I agree with your understanding. Bruce, are you, you would agree yeah. on that? Yeah. Okay. Well, Bruce said it. There it is. So, <laughs> E.F. Hutton has spoken. So, all right. Well, isn't it rich? I mean, here you have all the way back to the time of Abraham, a figure that the Lord is going to use. And we see him in Psalm 110. There's indirect reference in Zechariah and then in the in uh, Dead Sea Scrolls and he's found uh, mentioned and then it, all of a sudden he appears up in the New Testament isn't that great now you turn this tapestry over and there are several thread, threads that are woven throughout it and that's one of them you'll see this thread and it's Melchizedek tied through to show that we have a priest and a king and David could never be that. He, at times he acted like a priest. Remember the whole thing with the ephod but, uh, in 2 Samuel. But it's different than what we see here. Well, let's go on and we'll look here at the next point. Is that verses 5 and 6 and the reference here to um, the Lord destroying um, any opposition to the king. He says, again, he highlights in verse 5, you're at your right hand. And he's going to strike down the kings in the day he unleashes his anger. Uh, this is the Lord acting. He's executing his judgment. And it is very graphic. But war is graphic. And uh, time and time again, this would be an interesting discussion down the road. Uh, God is a God of war. <laughs> uh, if you remember, there were times when he said, you wipe out everyone in the town. Not just the, the warriors. You wipe out the women and children. Everything goes. Raise it to the ground. You know, woo! What do you do with that one? Good thing we have a God of the New Testament, right? Mm -hmm. Careful. It's Christ himself who's going to come and he is going to unleash in Revelation. There's a day coming. And, and so looking at God and war, that's a whole other theological discussion. But... It often is depicted as such, and you see that here, filling the valleys with corpses, which was often the case what they would do is roll the dead bodies into the valley. Um, and he shatters their heads. I mean, that's, that's not a nice image there, is it? Uh, that's what I felt like when I got hit. Uh, yes, he shatters their heads over the vast battlefield. Um, <clears throat> that's the idea there that we see, that he is going forth. He is going to execute. He, that is the Lord, ultimately is the judge. And I, and I mentioned there, he's qualified to judge because he is holy. He sits on the holy mountains. They aren't. They weren't willing to follow, right? We saw that before. Thanks. Yes. <laughs> Lou. Um, could heads also mean the big guys in each of those countries and other words, the leader? Yeah, and I think that's probably the case there, is the leaders. Yeah. So it's not really the... Not the, the skulls. Uh, no. Um... But I think it is the leaders. He moves from all the nations up to the leaders. So there's kind of an escalation of, uh, of judgment and authority. And we see that in Revelation, by the way, don't you, with the Antichrist. Uh, he's the first to inhabit hell uh, proper, uh, will be the Antichrist. And he will, so he's capable of judging. The Lord can do it. And he will ensure it. Why? It's tied with verse 4. Uh, my reputation is at stake. Right? I am holy. They are not. You are my king, and you will judge. 
and they are the enemy. Reminded of um, Ephesians 2, before salvation, we were children of wrath. We were the enemy of the Lord Almighty. Right? <clears throat> Indeed, he's qualified to, to judge. Look at Psalm 135, since we're right there. Just, just turn over briefly to Psalm 135, verses 13 and 14. He says, O Lord, your name endures, your reputation, O Lord, lasts, for the Lord vindicates his people and has compassion on his servants. The two-edged sword, well, not, not a two-edged sword, but on one side he judges, on the other side he has compassion. And uh, thank the Lord for that, right? He is a righteous judge. No political persuasion. <laughs> uh, no lobbyist is going to get to him. He, he rules right and just. Psalm 135. And then finally it closes with, I, I think it's a little odd, if you want my opinion, <laughs> verse 7. I, I, I wouldn't have ended it this way. Like, all right, on to battle we go. And yet, you see God's compassion from the stream along the road. He drinks and he lifts up his head. He shatters the other heads, but this head is lifted up. The king, the Lord, um, well, the Lord ultimately, but David, here is the reference. Um, the term here, refreshing, is used in Judges when Samson, remember he fought the Philistines, and then he's exhausted, and God miraculously provides water for him. Um, that's the idea here of refreshing. I also think of um, our Lord himself and how God refreshed his own son, in the midst of the battle. But from the stream along the road he drinks, and he lifts up his head. In other words, the Lord will take care of the one who sits at his right hand. His oath has been tied directly with this one. In your notes, with the intersect, let me just highlight a couple things here that I want you to see. We've already looked at Hebrews 7, but the king of Psalm 110 according to the New Testament, time and time again, is that that Lord that David spoke to is Jesus Christ. He is the one. And I, I mentioned this there in your notes, and you can read these, that Jesus cited Psalm 110 himself to prove that the Messiah is more than mere physical descendant. Peter quoted Psalm 110 in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost to state that Jesus is the Messiah. So he uses it as the uh, demonstration that is indeed the case. The writers of the New Testament we talked about, they stated that God places his enemies under his feet. 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus was given the title of high priest. And as we mentioned, he's after the order of Melchizedek. Martin Hengel, a uh, New Testament scholar from Germany, years gone by, states the effectiveness of Jesus as the priestly intercessor and advocate is not only a consequence of his atoning death, Jesus' death, but also the expression of his participation in the dominion of God, which he gained through sitting at the right hand. Remember Colossians 1, Ephesians 1? After Christ accomplished here on earth, what did, what's the text state? He's seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realms. Right? That's our one. And so when I look at this and I think of Psalm 110, uh, I have three sub-points under this. That God is the promise keeper. 
Number one, the, God, the one who promised is to do what's best for us. Jeremiah 29. You know the text, right? Anyone want to quote it from memory? You know the text? Turn to Jeremiah 29.11. I heard it. Yes. Not to harm you. Right? That's Psalm 29.11. The one who made the promise to David is the same one who's making, he's made promises to us as followers. Right? Give me a promise the Lord has made to his people. I'll be with you always. I'll never leave you, nor forsake you. What other promises have you made to us? Yeah. Yeah, your future. Forgive us of sins as far as the east is from the west. Yeah. Knock. Come in and have fellowship. We use this as a salvific verse, but it's not. It's a context of believers. Uh, he's longing for fellowship. Knock it. <laughs> Open the door. Let's, let's have communion. What else? What other promises the Lord made for, to us? He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. Yes. I'm coming again soon. Yeah. Amen. Coming again soon. I don't know about you, but. Uh, we talked about the news and you see what's happening in this world. Uh, claim one of these promises this week. Claim one of these promises. Say, Lord, uh, whether it's Jeremiah 29 or, or you know, uh, confess my sin, you forgive it. Uh, and just really try to commit that to daily prayer this week. Lord, you've made this promise and you've made promises to David and you kept them. And I'm going to cling to this promise this week. I really need it. Um, because, as we think about this, the one who promises that which will be fulfilled. It will be done. <clears throat> Second Peter is a really interesting text. The believers are suffering. In many ways, there's a lot of correlation between the, the days of uh, Peter when he writes to today. We live in a day where... Um, <laughs> Orthodoxy is poo-pooed, uh, it's downplayed, and the wicked seem to prosper. In, in 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9, it says, Dear friends, do not let this one thing escape notice, that a single day... Uh, the, the issue is, uh, there's those going around saying, you know what, I don't think this end thing is going to ever happen. The Lord's not coming back. The, the, the wicked seem to, to keep flourishing. He said, a single day is like a thousand years with the Lord, and a thousand years like a single day. The Lord is not slow, love this, concerning His promise. Not in His timetable whether it's September the 10th or the 13th. <laughs> uh, he knows the calendar, and he's got it, right? He's in charge. Uh, as some regard slowness, but as being patient towards you because he does not wish for any, there is our compassionate God, right? For all to come to repentance. For the day will come, as the text goes on to state. Why? Because he's stated, he's declared it, Right? Just as he's declared, uh, I will never leave you, forsake you. I'm there. You may doubt it, but I've made the promise. And it will come to fruition. I can guarantee it, says the Lord. And that leaves with the last one. And wh why can he guarantee it? Because he has the capability to see it fulfilled. 
right? That's the last part. The Lord who promises will, with the power to keep His word, no matter how evil or difficult this world might appear. And some of you are in the throes of it right now. Um, the final outcome is certain, right? Hebrews 6. Turn back since we, we were looking at Hebrews 7. Let's look at Hebrews 6. And we'll close with this, this powerful text. Hebrews 6, 17 through 20. Hebrews 6, 17. In the same way, God wanted to demonstrate more clearly to the heirs of the promise, that's us, that his purpose was unchangeable. And so he intervened with an oath so that we have found refuge in him may find strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. That's the problem with the, the audience of the writer of Hebrews. The audience is wanting to give up. And, and one of the major themes of Hebrews is, you got to hold fast. I realize this world seems to be falling apart and you're losing the wheel off your tricycle. Hold fast, he says, since it's impossible for God, I love this, to lie. Man, set that one to memory, right? Because I guarantee you, if you haven't already faced it, you will. Like, Lord, I know you've made these promises, but my theology is not matching my experience. And often, sadly enough, experience can overweigh override our theology and it can't it, it, it just can't you know Lori and I were talking and it's minor compared to what some of you are going through to have a fender bender uh, it was a huge inconvenience <laughs> and it still is um, though I do feel very good with muscle relaxers no uh, uh, they should market those things <laughs> uh, uh, you know you say the Lord, it could have been far worse. You know, we, we were playing through it. Well, we don't know why the Lord allowed that to happen. You know, we get on to 70 and there's this huge accident. So, well, maybe the Lord spared us from being in that one. I don't know. But the Lord has promised to protect us, to watch over us. And we trust Him. You know? Uh, yeah, it's inconvenient. Yeah, if I could find the guy, I'd wring his neck. But, you know... Uh, we and he didn't have insurance. Go figure. Uh, we have the hope as an anchor for the soul. Watch this, sure and steadfast, which reached inside. This this anchor doesn't go down; it goes up inside the curtain where Jesus, our forerunner, entered on our behalf. Where is he seated? At the right hand. And what's it say? He became a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. If that doesn't summarize what we just looked at in Psalm one ten, I don't know what does. A God who does not lie. He's in charge. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your care for us. Thank you that you are a God who doesn't lie. And you will and are keeping your word. And Lord, we see that embodied with Psalm 110 because it's fulfilled in your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we long for the day when the final fulfillment of that psalm that is when he reigns and the enemies are destroyed and we are in your presence forever will be fulfilled. Until then, Lord, help us to be found faithful serving you. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. Be with these men today. Just go before them. Bless them for carving this time out to study your word today. In Jesus' name, amen.